0: For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan, and I serve as one of the elders here at Sovereign Grace. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. With that being said, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 43. I'll read it and then pray. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from a deceitful and unjust man deliver me. O oh God, my God, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that by it this morning, we, your church, would be built up and edified, that we'd be trained. In the righteousness that you set forth for us in it. And that you would cause us to behold your Son. In glory, in power, and dominion, in grace and in mercy. We ask that you would give us an attentiveness to your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now many of you in your life can probably think of times where you've dealt with deep despair with great grief, with tremendous affliction. I know uh, maybe save some of the children or particularly infants that the majority of you in one way or another have experienced deep despair. I know that I can think of times in my own life where I've been so in the throes of my own mind, of my own emotion, of my own despair, that all I wanted to do was sleep because it felt like that was the only place that I could find relief from the feelings that I was wrestling with, from the despair that burdened me, that plagued me. And those seasons, no matter what doctrine I held to, no matter how much I loved the truth of God's providence, no matter how much we love the truth of God's sovereignty and care for us as his people, for some reason, our ability to think rationally is easily drowned out by our despair. Some people can't eat. Some people can't sleep. Most of us, at the very least, can't function at any significant capacity. It's hard to work. It's hard to get things done when we're burdened by our grief and by despair. It feels like drowning, to borrow from... The Pilgrim's Progress, drowning in the bog of despond with the burden of grief and despair on our backs. I know for a fact how helpless we can feel in those seasons. Last week we saw this sort of despair exemplified for us in the 42nd Psalm. Pastor Russell walked us through Psalm 42. And if you'll remember, we saw some language like that the psalmist's tears had been his food. That his soul is cast down within him. And that God's breakers and waves were crashing over him. That the taunts of his enemies were as wounds, as deadly wounds in his bones. And so for the second week in a row, we're dealing with a very heavy psalm. But as I studied it, and I hope that you can see it too, there is tremendous beauty set forth for us amidst the psalmist's despair. Though it's common that we see repeated themes in the Psalter as they run through the whole spectrum of human emotion experience, there's something particular about the relationship between Psalm 43 and Psalm 42. You probably recognize some of the same exact language being used that was already used in Psalm 42, especially in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Russ mentioned last week that this was a refrain that ran through the 42nd psalm and is carried on into the 43rd psalm. We also see some similar language that has enough distinctness to it in verse 2 that says, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? We'll look more at what comes just before that as we work through the text together. But some scholars take Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 to be one psalm. And obviously there's the theme that runs through the both of them, there's the repeated refrain, there's the fact that Psalm 43 doesn't have the superscript above it that much of the Psalms do, but there's also, I guess, some Hebrew manuscripts that actually take them to be one Psalm. It's debated, and obviously our English translations take them to be two, and I think that that's because of the distinction between what's happening in Psalm 42 and what's happening in Psalm 43. In any case, regardless of the position that you take on that matter, what's clear is that there is a relationship between them. What's clear is that there's a theme that drives through the both of them, and that's despair, depression, as Russ worked through last week. For those of you who weren't with us, Russ taught on Psalm 42 and and what it means to glorify God in the midst of our depression. And he worked through three points. He worked through the condition of depression or despair itself the causes, and then called us to hope in Christ. Psalm 42 seems to emphasize the psalmist's experience with his despair. It's really a leveling of his lament, a crying out and a communicating of the extent to which he despairs, to the extent to which he suffers. But Psalm 43 seems to escalate for a variety of reasons, and I hope that we'll see that this morning Though a similar theme, we're narrowing in on a pattern that the psalmist lays out for us. Because I think that there's a logical flow, whether conscious or subconscious, I'm not sure. But there's a logical pattern to what the psalmist is saying between 42 and especially in 43. And by that pattern, I want us to see that subjective experience must be tempered by objective truth. Or more specifically, that despair must be tempered by the light and truth of the gospel. We'll see that worked out in three points. First is the psalmist's affliction. We'll look at the psalmist's affliction in verses 1 and 2. Then we'll look at the psalmist's aspiration in verses 3 and 4. And then thirdly, the psalmist's anticipation in verse 3. Ordinarily, I'm not an alliterator, but... When I was looking at this and I made my points and two of them started with an A and the third didn't, I was like suffering inside to find another word that would make it an alliteration. So you're welcome. (laughs) For the first point then, let's narrow in on the psalmist's affliction. So look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Now, right away, we can see a window into the nature of the psalmist's affliction. Though it lacks some historical context, as Russell mentioned last week, we don't really know what is happening or where the psalmist is But in 43 verses 1 through 2, we see him crying out. We see him making his first request if you take the relationship between the two Psalms into consideration. He calls out that God would vindicate him, he calls out that he would defend his cause, that he would deliver him from a deceitful, ungodly, and unjust enemy. And so it's likely, or potentially at least, that the psalmist is being falsely accused. He's being made guilty of something that he didn't do, of some sin or some whatever it is that his oppressors or his enemies might have to say against him. Whatever it is, it's false. It must be false because he cries out for the Lord's vindication. Or another way to translate vindication there is judgment. Judge me, O God, and defend my cause. Because he knows that God knows him aright, where his enemies are falsely accusing him. But in chapter 42, we also saw some more that helps shape the affliction of the psalmist. We saw his enemies taunting him, saying, Where is your God in the midst of his despair? Where is your God? It reminds me a bit of the crucifixion, where Jesus is on the cross, And his mockers stand below him as he is in agony for our sin, for our guilt. And they mock him saying, he trusts God. Let God deliver him now. He trusts God. Let God save him. Now, I've never had an enemy kick me while I was down, but I can't imagine what it would feel like to be in the throes of despair and have someone come to you and go, I know that you're really sad, but it sure would be great if your God were here to rescue you, wouldn't it? Where is he now? Where is he as you despair? Where is he as you suffer? Where is your God? And so the psalmist's enemies or oppressors are mocking him. But though the oppression of his enemies was great, the major concern for the psalmist, the major thing that seems to cause him affliction, seems to be something else. And we saw it in 42, and we see it again in 43, and that seems to be his separation from corporate worship, from the dwelling place of God in Jerusalem. Like Russ mentioned last week, this psalmist is probably in exile. He's probably somewhere to the north, judging by the language that he uses in Psalm 42. And we don't know why. We don't know what he's doing there or how he got there. But look at verse 2 of 43 with me again. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? so I mentioned the why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. That's the same phrase that was used in Psalm 42. But I mentioned that there's an escalation in Psalm 43. Because just prior to that in Psalm 42, he says, why have you forgotten me? And then he moves on in Psalm 43 to say, why have you rejected me? Clearly, those are two very different things. Substantially different things. But if I were to give an example, if, if I forgot to give my kids lunch someday which I have, and Chantelle's probably laughing at me. And it's super embarrassing. But if I forgot to give them lunch, I would receive a gracious yet sharp rebuke from my wife, reminding me that you need to feed your children. It's one thing to forget. But if I outright rejected them and refused to give them the food that they needed, it wouldn't be a sharp rebuke or a gracious remark that I'd get. I'd be in jail, and rightfully so, for child abuse. The difference in what the psalmist is saying in that God has forgotten him in Psalm 42 and that him saying that God has rejected him in Psalm 43 is an escalation according to his perception. What the psalmist isn't doing here, he's not coming and saying or accusing God of actually rejecting him. And we'll see that in the rest of the text because it's clear that he trusts in him. It's clear that he knows the truth about God. But this is what it feels like. Despite what he knows to be true, this is the kind of despair where emotion seems to rule reason. And again, I know times in my own life, as I'm sure that you do too, where my doctrine quickly flies out the window because of what I feel, because of our despair. We can hold fast to these doctrines. We can know them intellectually, but if we don't call them to mind, if we don't temper our emotional experience, if we don't temper our despair with the good news of the gospel, we will only wallow in our despair. We will only seek deeper and deeper into the muck and mire, asking God, where are you? Why are you absent? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? But the psalmist isn't finished yet. Look with me at how he moves from his affliction in our first point, which was intentionally brief, to his aspiration as he makes his next request in verses 3 and 4. Look there again. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. This is the psalmist's aspiration. His first request is for deliverance, for vindication. In one sense, we can assume that this deliverance or vindication that he longs for is just a desire to be released from his oppressors in order that he might return to Jerusalem, to the temple there, and worship there. But what becomes clear is the psalmist's aspiration is greater than just temple worship. It's greater than just his longing for Jerusalem. Like I said, one can read this and assume, because of some things that were said in Psalm 42, he remembers leading the throng in procession to the household of God. He remembers coming to corporate worship, singing the praises of God, and keeping festival. He acknowledges the despair that he experiences because he's away from Jerusalem. He acknowledges his separation being in the north. But if we look more closely at the language that he uses in 43 verse 4, we'll see that there's something more at play here than just the temple, than just Jerusalem. He says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Then I will praise him with the lyre, O God my God. You see, it's not just the temple that the psalmist longed for. It's not just Jerusalem that the psalmist longed for. It's not even just deliverance from his despair that the psalmist longed for. It was God who was his exceeding joy that he longed for. It was communion, the sweetness and the grandeur and the glory of communion with his Lord that he longed for. This is his aspiration. He wants to go back to Jerusalem. He wants to go back to the temple, sure, but it's because God is there. Under the old covenant, the the people knew that they could meet with God if they came to the temple. It was a sign to them that God dwelt in their midst, and though some were inclined to make the temple their idol, the saints of the Old Testament knew something significant. Recently, I was sitting with a brother having coffee, and we we're reflecting on a heavenly mindset. We're reflecting on Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. And you don't have to turn there, but I want to read it to you. Psalm 73, 25 and 26 says this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever or in psalm 16:11 which russell read for us this morning you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore this is not just cute poetic language it's not just nice quaint poetry not like a love song that you would hear where someone just longs to be with their beloved. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. In God's presence, at his right hand, are pleasures forevermore. Something objective is being communicated here, and that's the glory and sweetness of communion with God. That is the psalmist's aspiration. Whom have I in heaven but you? It reminds me of the 17th century Scottish minister, Samuel Rutherford, who I'm sure many of you have heard before, who said, Oh my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me. For thou art all the heaven I want. Thou art all the heaven I want. Again, while the psalmist is certainly geographically hindered from coming before the throne of grace, geographically hindered from partaking in worship in the temple in Jerusalem, and I know that you could always take the literal road and just think that he wants to go to Jerusalem again, or you can see the clear picture of something greater. Look at the language again that he uses in verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Surely there's no coincidence that this is the same type of language that the New Testament uses to refer to the Lord Jesus. Send out your light and your truth. This is a clear foreshadowing of Christ to come, by whom we have access to the throne of grace. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. It's a familiar passage, but I want you to see this with me. Matthew 27, verse 45. Speaking of the access that we have to God by the Lord Jesus Christ, here, Matthew 27, verses 45 and following. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hurting it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again, with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. In verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Do you not see the clear foreshadowing in Psalm 43? That in his aspiration for the dwelling place of God, to come to the altar of God, God his exceeding joy, he is foreshadowing for us that that light and truth by which we have access to the throne of grace. The Lord Jesus Christ, the psalmist is crying out to come before the throne of God. Calling upon the Lord himself to deliver him by light and truth. The psalmist knows the covenant faithfulness of God. He knows the promises that were made to his father, Abraham. He knows that this covenant-keeping God is the same God that delivered his people out of exile, out of slavery in the land of Egypt. That this same God promised a future Davidic king who would reign over the household of God forever. And that this same God is the God who promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a Messiah, one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. What is any man's confidence to come to the altar of God but by his free grace and mercy? Because we are by nature sinners, children of wrath, sons of our father the devil. By nature, this is our standing. We have committed cosmic treason. Do you understand that? That it's not just that we've disobeyed some great being but that we have committed cosmic treason against the creator and sustainer of everything, of the Lord of all creation, and that we are rightfully under just judgment and that in our sin we have no right to come before the throne, no access to come before God, lest we be struck dead in our sin because our God is holy. But by grace according to God's steadfast love, according to His covenant faithfulness, we rejoice in the same way that the author of Hebrews said in chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. You can turn there with me if you'd like. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Who promised is faithful. Brothers and sisters, holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering is clinging to the truth when our despair would drive us mad. It is clinging to or tempering our subjective experience with God's revealed, divinely inspired, objective truth. The psalmist knew that he needed to temper his despair, and so what does he do here other than meditate on and reflect on his aspiration, the objective glory and sweetness of communion with God, that which he had according to the steadfast love and covenant faithfulness of God alone, not by works. Not by anything that he has done or could ever do, but according to God's steadfast love alone. But the psalm isn't over. We've seen the affliction. We've seen the nature of his affliction in verses 1 and 2, and even some in chapter 42. We've seen his aspiration being not just the temple in Jerusalem, not even just to come to corporate worship, but that he aspires to come before God himself. He aspires to have the sweetness and glory of communion with God. And now we move into his anticipation in verse 5. Look there again with me. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see, this is the point in the psalm where the psalmist clearly begins to reason with himself. He cries out in his affliction. He pleads according to his aspiration. And now he reasons with his own soul according to his anticipation. He's not just miraculously defeating his despair and making it go away by saying this to himself. I know it's not as easy as just like if anybody is in a season of despair or in great grief It's almost frustrating when somebody just comes to you and says, well, just have hope. What are you doing? Have hope. You have no reason to despair. You have no reason to grieve. You have no reason to wallow in your affliction. Just have hope. I know how trivial that statement tends to feel when you're in the throes of despair. And so it's not just that he's assuming that if he just tells himself this sort of formulaically, that if he just says, why are you downcast? Hope in God. If he just says that somehow it's going to go away and he's going to feel better. No, he's preaching the gospel to himself. Like Russ taught on last week. He's doing the very thing that I hope that you and I would do every time that we face despair. We preach the truth to ourselves. We find ourselves under the preached word on the Lord's day. Regularly committed to the ordinary means of grace to receiving the sacraments, to singing the truths about God back to him in corporate worship. It seems to appeal to reason with divine inspiration so as to say, do not lose heart. Listen to Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 4. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, I know how easy it is to just tell you this, to stand up here for those of you who are in the throes of despair and just say, look at the truth. I know that it's more than just me telling you, but I'll tell you that it's not more than you hearing this regularly and you meditating on this and you allowing the objective truth of God's word to temper your subjective experience, to temper your grief with the gladness And the glory of communion with God, of the light and truth of the gospel. We need to be a people who make a regular practice of meditating on these truths, who find the word of God as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths, especially as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Because it's only then that we can say, I fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Because of what we know to be true about God, it is then and there alone that we can hope. Surround yourselves by people who will tell you the truth. Because there will be times in your life, like I mentioned at the outset, where you can't reason with yourself. Where you can't even seem to stand up, let alone eat or sleep. Or do any of the ordinary tasks that you would do every day. Surround yourselves with people who will tell you the truth, who will hold you up when you can't stand any longer, who will hold forth these precious and great promises of the Lord. In that same conversation that I was having over coffee, as we were reflecting on Psalm 73, and the psalmist saying, and David saying, Whom have I in heaven but you? We also wrestled with how little we look forward. How little we consider what is not yet. What is yet to come. And it's easy to see all of the pointing forward in the Old Testament. All of the pointing forward in the promises and the shadows and the types. That prefigure or foreshadow the wonder and beauty of Christ to come. And it's easy to think that everything everyone's ever been waiting for is finally here. And that this is it. And I know that me saying that, you're like, well no, that's not true. You wouldn't ever say that. But I'm saying that I know that it's easy to think like that. And this has different manifestations, but all of them are problematic. And I think what's happening here that we don't think about often is called an overrealized eschatology. An overrealized eschatology. And all that means is that it's typically subtle, but all that means is that we look forward to that eschatological hope, to the consummate future glory that we have. In the new heavens and the new earth, and we expect that to be here, now, presently. When it says that there will be no more crying in that place, that every tear will be wiped away from our eyes, that there will be no mourning, no grief, no despair, that it will be perfect. An overrealized eschatology is recognized or surfaces when we live our lives going, Why do we have to still despair? Hasn't Christ come? Hasn't he saved us from our sins? Why do I still feel this way? An overrealized eschatology, it manifests itself in a few different ways. We're not health and wealth prosperity gospel type people, but it's easy to expect, for whatever reason, that the foretaste of deliverance that we experience here and now is actually supposed to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. No, it's a foretaste. We're getting bits and pieces. Did you know that every time that we come together for corporate worship on the Lord's Day, that we get a foretaste of that heavenly reality? We get a foretaste of what is not yet, though is already here, but is not yet consummated. And so those types of people who expect consummate glory here and now, are distraught when they realize that they aren't completely sanctified. They're mad that they still struggle with sin. They're frustrated with God when they feel as though he's abandoned him, when they feel as though they've been rejected by him. But what the psalmist is doing when he says, why have you rejected me? He's not making an accusation. He's just speaking clearly and honestly about his personal feelings about his subjective experience what it seems like to be in the throes of despair is that it seems like god has rejected us but it's only because we have an overrealized eschatology at least in part but then there's another type of person that doesn't look forward there's the other person who doesn't look forward because they're too focused too preoccupied with the transient with the temporary. But to that person, I would say, what comfort do we actually have on this earth if we don't anticipate that eternal weight of glory? What comfort do you actually have when the despair doesn't go away? Is our one comfort both in life and in death that we will experience relief from our affliction presently? Or is it something else? Is it that we are not our own? Now, I'm not saying that you don't ask for relief from your affliction. I'm not saying that you don't plead with the Lord for peace and comfort and joy in the midst of your despair. You certainly do that. But what if God doesn't take it away? What if you have to spend the rest of your life wrestling with whatever it is that causes you despair? And you don't understand why. What if in God's providence we're given a greater portion of suffering than our neighbor? Do we cry out like children and say this isn't fair? Or do we reflect on what Paul learned from his thorn in his flesh? Paul prayed three times, pleading with the Lord that he would take it from him. He didn't want to agonize over whatever caused him the pain and discomfort that this thorn in his flesh did. He prayed three times for deliverance, and he was not relieved. But God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore Paul can go about boasting all the more gladly of his weaknesses. Because when he is weak, he knows that he is strong. Paul's thorn and so should our despair, so should our afflictions cause us to rely on the sufficiency of God's grace. To keep us humble and to fix our gaze upon the glory and grandeur of Christ our Lord. Whom have I in heaven but you? Again, I'm not trying to discredit the depth of despair as we experience. I don't understand God's providence the way that I want to either. I don't understand it when I'm wrestling with things and they don't seem to cease. I don't understand it when I can't think straight naturally. But this is why Lamentations 3 has become one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I want you to turn to Lamentations 3. And it's fitting because it's another clear picture of the author reasoning with himself. Another clear picture of the author of Lamentations tempering his subjective experience with objective hope. Lamentations 3. Look at verses 19 through 24. Remember my affliction and my wandering. The wormwood and the gall Or the bitterness. My soul continually remembers it. And is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. This I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great Is your faithfulness? The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Do you see what He's doing? Do you see what he's saying? His soul is bowed down within him. It's cast down in the same manner that the psalmist's soul is in 42 and 43. His affliction is heavy. Again, this isn't just cute poetic language. This is a present reality for the psalmist. This I call to mind though. This Objective reality. This I call to mind. And therefore, based upon that fundamental reality, that foundational truth, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And His mercies never come to an end. Great is His faithfulness. He anticipates the fulfillment of God's great and precious promises because he knows that he who promised is faithful. It's the exact same thing that the psalmist is doing in Psalm 43. He sets his mind, his gaze on future glory. To quote Spurgeon, Let us learn to kiss the wave that throws us up against the rock of ages. Let us learn to kiss the breakers and the waves that crash over us because they cause us to flee to Christ. Our rock of ages, our refuge and hope, our very present help in trouble. As we reflect on our affliction, as we reflect on our despair, Let us be a people who set our gaze upon Christ, a people who are under the Word, continually learning and reveling in the glory of God made known to us in His Word, people who orient our minds upon the One in whom we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, who in despair might naturally just be overwhelmed by our emotions, are able to return to the Word, to return to the truth, and to rest there and find hope there. Despite our circumstances, let's be a people who count everything, everything as a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Like I said, as we were sitting over coffee, it wasn't just that we were reflecting on this and there was just this like quaint time, we're smoking cigars or whatever it is, but that we were floored by how easy it is to lose sight of God, our exceeding joy, to be distracted by the temporary. I know that telling you it is easier than doing it ourselves. I don't want to make it a law unto you for you to keep. I just want you to know I just want to communicate to you the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord and of communion with God. I pray that you see, I pray earnestly that you see that there is nothing greater in heaven or on earth below than what he has done for us in love. Nothing. And I plead with you to meditate on him, to flee to him. And let us be a people who look forward, not caught up in an over-realized eschatology, not looking for glory here, because you won't find it here. You'll find the foretaste of that deliverance. But as you go about your days, your pilgrimage, as it were, here on earth, let us be a people who are always striving after the goal with our minds fixed on what is to come. What is not yet, resting and reveling in what is already true, but running after what is not yet. The glorious return of our Savior and consummate communion with our triune Lord. Until He comes, let us be a people who open our mouths, preaching and proclaiming the forgiveness of sins to the ends of the earth, pleading with our friends, family, co-workers, and neighbors, that they would look to the Lord Jesus in faith and be saved. Look at Revelation 21. I want to end with this. One more passage to reiterate that future hope of glory. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. And again, if I said nothing this morning, hear now from the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven... And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is the word of the Lord. This is our future eschatological hope of glory. This is where the psalmist finds comfort in his affliction as he aspires for that genuine and perfect consummate communion with his triune Lord, God his exceeding joy. Let's pray. Father, truly there is none like you. In heaven above or on earth below, there is no God besides you. Father, forgive us for how easy it is to get lost in the fleeting passions and the temporary satisfactions that we find here in the world. Help us to know that we will find no lasting comfort there. We will always be hungering for more. Always be pining after your deliverance because we refuse to see that we're pursuing the wrong things. Help us to be a people. Comfort us in our despair as you help us to be a people who look forward, to be a people who would have no greater desire than to meditate on the objective reality of your love for us and your Son, who, who are floored, We know that in and of ourselves, we don't have the intellectual capacity to make ourselves believe this. So God, by your spirit, help us to behold and to see the wonder and beauty and glory of communion with God. The comfort, our one comfort both in life and in death. So Father, we do pray that you would be with those who grieve this morning. That you would be with those who can't be with us this morning. That you would comfort them. That you would cause them to trust in you. That you would cause them to say, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And so we rejoice because we know this to be true. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.